0: mindset was, how is it possible that people have nothing to eat? Everybody has a few days of rushing mm-hmm. Who have been working in this Gurgaon Manesar area actually discovered that public health centers in places like Manesar and Dharu Heda have better records uh, of the population than uh, census or other kind of administrators. Most people are talking about 25-30% to 30% pay cut hmm. and uh, middle level, and this is among senior management, middle to senior management, but uh, lower down the scale, there is a widespread loss of uh, jobs. Have you placed too much premium on this idea of physical mobility?
1: This is your podcast, COVID-19 and the City, and you're with Anant Maringanti. As a country of 130 crore people, we Indians are preparing for an escalation in our fight against COVID-19. As our testing capacity increases, we are seeing a corresponding rise in the number of positives. We are asking ourselves with some trepidation, are we entering the community transmission stage of the disease? These past 10 days have been a race against time for some of us to reach essential supplies to stranded migrant workers. And it's a pause to some where they could sit back and watch Ramayana and catch up with family members. These past 10 days also brought into sharp relief the fragility of life and dreams in our cities for millions of people. In this episode, we present Mukta Nayak, urban planner, researcher, activist, and resident of Gurgaon. Part reflections, part analysis, part reminiscing, Mukta Naik is with us to tell us about her experience of this unique window in our shared urban life. Thank you very much Mukta for agreeing to speak to us. Let me begin with a personal question. Um, let's get back to the night of the 24th March when the whole country in one moment, began to realize that they're going to be locked down for the next three weeks. As a planner, as a researcher, as someone who moves around the city, as a person with a, living with a family. What were your first thoughts at that moment?
0: Thank you Anand, uh, for asking me to be part of this conversation. Uh, I have to say that being asked to work from home and sort of easing into a lockdown, so I can't say that the lockdown came as a complete shock and surprise. Maybe the extent of it did, but uh, other countries had also been practicing lockdowns, so it didn't come as a shock. But it was hard to comprehend what a lockdown meant. So for the first few days, because other countries had been practicing it in different ways, it took a few days to realize uh, the extent to which mobility would be restricted. So the questions were really about, you know, it's okay if I can't move out of home all the time, but can I see my mother? Can my child cycle around the park? Uh, what will happen to people who live alone? How will they get home and reunite with their families? What happens if a medical emergency happens? We we'd had one in the house just a few days ago. So so these were sort of the, the, the top of the mind uh, questions because it wasn't clear then that it would be such a hard lockdown in the sense of, you know, imposed with sort of rigid rules. At least where I live, it seems like it's an iron-fisted lockdown.
1: I mean, this is an experience that we have had in Hyderabad as well. It was only on the second or third day um, that it suddenly struck us that this is actually curfew, that it was being called by some other name, and it was something which was totally puzzling and for, for many people. In the beginning, it seemed amusing, but then... Uh, as it oh. began to sink in, it was quite scary. To get back to the question, what exactly began to unfold after the first two or three days? You are an urban planner, activist, researcher, and, and I'm sure it's difficult to keep these things separate. Can you tell us what were the, the concerns of the administration, the most pressing concerns of the administration on the first uh, few days in Gurgaon City?
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, in Gurgaon, it's basically all of this was taken on by the district administration and it wasn't very clear what the municipal corporation's role is in the beginning. And the entire focus was on enforcing the lockdown. And mm-hmm. uh, that basically meant, of course, working through the RWAs to sort of, uh, you know, tell them that a lockdown actually means people need to stay home as much as possible, etc. And then it took a sort of a vigilante bent with RWAs uh, sort of making up their own rules and finding the first, I think, couple of days were difficult also because people were doing things and then learning from their RWAs that these things are allowed and these things are not allowed. So there was some experimentation there. But the communication from the administration was was pushing people towards the most extreme form of lockdown, which is a curfew. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of clarifications had to be issued to sort of put this information out there and uh, the administration also conducted awareness drives physically moving teams uh, through the city with megaphones to talk to people into informal settlements urban villages slums juggi clusters to actually talk about like there were videos that they circulated uh, about the content these sort of one-sided uh, conversations uh, and it was mostly about why is there a lockdown why do we have to do this what do we mean by social distancing there's really no feedback on what the communities perceived of this but but there were some efforts put in place to communicate widely about what the lockdown is why it's required they also quickly expanded the civil defense group which was already in existence under the DC's office and RWAs were added here so they very quickly sort of put in place a system to address queries and also issue new memos where if there was confusion get allay fears about supply chain issues things like that so so all that did happen over the first few days but the focus was entirely on enforcing the lockdown
1: and then and then was was it was your sense that uh, yeah. um, the residents had a different set of concerns and and i'm Taking it that the different strata of residents in Gurgaon, um, it must be a pretty divided place um, with the villages, yeah. with the, the gated communities, all living in each living in its own world. So what were yeah. the, the concerns that, that were coming from the residents of Gurgaon?
0: So, uh, you know, it's been a case study in which residents have a voice and which residents have a better connect to the administration. So since these the the initial mechanisms were things like WhatsApp groups, which included uh, the elite and especially those from gated communities and RWAs from certain sectors of plotted, uh, you know, plotted sectors uh their concerns were the ones reflected first. And it's only by day two or three that the concerns from other parts of society started coming in as people started making SOS calls to labor unions, to NGOs, to their own employers to say that, you know, we are facing problems. We are not being able to go to get rations or PBS shops are shut or you know so so urban villages for instance they were running out of rations the supply chain issues were not smoothly ironed in an equitable fashion uh, mm-hmm. so while the administration was doing a lot to reassure gated communities which have always had a much more powerful voice in Gurgaon city, uh, connected as they are to builders and developers who've been traditionally powerful actors uh, in a city like Gurgaon. Uh, the, the administration has gone out of the way to reassure them. So there were things like Google Excel sheets that RWAs could fill in the evening by a certain time so that they could ensure supplies of those things by the next morning. Communities that did not have shops indoors had mobile vans of supplies going in. And then on the other hand, there would be SOS calls coming from communities of migrant workers, casual laborers, daily wage laborers, industrial workers across the city saying, we have no idea how we're going to survive. The magnitude of this problem of just desperation for food uh, I think started really coming into notice of the administration on day three of the lockdown. Their sort of mindset was, how is it possible that people have nothing to eat? Everybody has a few days of ration in their house. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is the kind of response. And it took a lot of effort, I think, in civil society to press on them that the reality is that many of these people are daily wage workers, which literally means that they are aj kamaya aj khaya. So they're literally eating if they earn on that particular day. And even if they had Russians, they're going to be very, very stingy with them unless they are ensured that there is there is going to be a steady supply of some kind. I think the magnitude of the problem and the geographical spread of the problem really surprised not only the administration, but but I think a lot of us who work on these issues in the city as well. Hmm. Because, you know, some there are some groups who work with domestic workers, there are other groups who work with industrial workers. But, you know, to see all of it come together in this particular way was was a little shocking. It's a necessary shock in the sense that now we know that, that there is a very, very large population of vulnerable people in the city.
1: So Mukta, in Mookta, what you're saying, I'm hearing two, two different strands, right? One is the question of uh, uh, disruptions in supply chains, and the other is the invention of new distribution networks. And and the distribution networks being a a very strange uh, moment uh, because, I mean, quite resonating with what you're telling me, uh, in Hyderabad, for example, we were hearing... People say that, look, we have the PDS system which is supposed to deliver to all the people who need rations, so that is in place. Those who don't have uh, PDS cards um, can go and get meals at the kitchens that we will run and there is no other population in the city that is Mm. uh, in need of uh, rations. Right over the next few days, actually there is a very very large population which does not have the documentation, uh, which right. doesn't come into the state's optics, and yet actually has a kitchen, it has a house, yeah. it has a roof on its yeah. head, whatever size it is, right. So given all of this and the extraordinary ways in which everything is being um, reconnected at this point of time. What do you think are the the key bottlenecks that, that emerged the last week?
0: Essentially, what happened in this whole scenario was that there was a very decentralized kind of a response to it. So mm-hmm. many, many different kinds of players jumped into this task of helping communities out. Mm. Uh, Some of it was being done by the state, but a lot of it was being done by private actors, Uh, not just NGOs, but also just collections of individuals. Mm. Uh, And it became really hard to keep track of all of this. So there were some communities that were getting more, uh, some communities that were completely neglected. So the, the, the bottleneck and the challenge became really, how do you put all of this together in terms of, uh, aggregating information. Um, how do you assess needs? You needed to verify through local contacts what the actual need was. For example, there may be a cluster of 200 families. The 15 families may be in an SOS situation where they cannot eat tonight, mm-hmm. and the rest of them may need Russian support over the next couple of days. So, they, so very, very interesting and nuanced uh, sort of uh, outreach efforts uh, were required, in which ver- you, you verified and you know you, for example, uh, somebody got. A a phone call saying uh, an employer from the domestic help saying problem. Uh, mm. and the employer contacts an NGO or somebody who says this is who's supplying in this particular place. Now a lockdown also entails that now the employer can't go and help this person directly mm-hmm. because they're locked down. So mm-hmm. The lo- loss of mobility was very frustrating to even those who wanted to help. So they had to find a distribution channel who could get to this person who was in XYZ location mm. and when the distribution channel was first was then identified and when the distribution contact person got in touch with this person and had a longer conversation. Now, this person is usually a community representative. So, somebody from within this person's community talks uh-huh. to them and they say, uh, Nahi bhaiya, actually, hamare paas so We actually have, uh, we can survive another 3 or 4 days, but uh-huh. there are these two families in our community who are really there. Uh-huh. So, uh, it revealed a very nuanced set of, uh, you know, an, an understanding of when you're speaking to a particular kind of person, you represent yourself in a particular way. And, you know, so they were also all those layers that came out and i think it was it it, it really created because we went because even the district administration realized they cannot provide for everybody and they Um, allowed some sort of decentralization and that allowed for a little more uh, nuanced approach to this uh, than saying these are the only three routes and uh, you know let's go with that but it also on the flip side meant that those who had very little agency uh, you know were not attended to as quickly as possible who didn't have the connections to reach out so Mm. these are the lessons sort of we're also learning as we go along but some of the other bottlenecks in Gurgaon are really uh, first of all responding to peripheral areas because um, not all of Gurgaon comes under the municipal corporation of Gurgaon and is inhabited densely as a city normally Mm. is areas like Manisar, Bhonsi uh, and And the area between Gurgaon and Manasseh for instance is fairly rural uh, and uh, wasn't very, and and there was a sudden discovery that there are populations of workers who are living in these uh, kind of places actually quite disconnected from support infrastructure. So they have probably been attached to a particular industrial unit or they are farm workers. So so sort of this kind of dispersed uh, settlement uh, and how do you respond to that when your uh, systems are geared to respond to dense city slums hmm. so there, that was so, also so
1: one of one of the, the things that i'm that i'm actually quite struck by is that in the last one week a number of uh, um, groups of uh, living creatures whether it is people living on the outskirts of the city or it is uh, dogs in the city stray dogs yes. who are going to go without food because all restaurants are closed down it looks like uh, this has been a moment when uh, an entire um, world that was uh, hitherto invisible to us uh, has suddenly become visible um, as as people who need to be included so do you think that this this extraordinary moment is actually teaching us um, how to be inclusive uh, do you th- what, what do you think is going on in in our in our discovery of the the different kinds of people, animals, trees that require tending to?
0: Absolutely, and I I'm afraid that we will lose this moment or lose the lesson that we've learned in this moment uh, because so many disasters have happened before, and these kind of uh, sort of realizations happen in those moments, but they're not often. Uh, uh, documented very carefully and picked up after the disaster, uh, after the immediate problems are sort of solved. So Mm. absolutely, I think we need to focus a little bit of attention on on this aspect and both in terms of who becomes visible but was previously invisible Mm. and uh, what are the different categories of these creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're all different from each other, and uh, and and I found that in gurgaon in the ordinary uh, middle-class elite person's imagination, this was a congealed mass of have not,
1: mm-hmm. and it's
0: only in this moment that they have realized the sort of find differences between various kinds of people. For example, a mm-hmm. bandara basti, which is which you drive by every day because, and they're visible because they sell wares and you go and buy urban ports or whatever from them, so they're visible. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have never thought about how they actually subsist and uh, what their what the rhythms of their lives are. So if you are a, a well-meaning citizen and you intercede with your RWA to help the busby that is right in front of your uh, condominium, uh, you are suddenly shocked that they're not the same as your domestic worker. Huh. Their life patterns are not the same as your maid, who probably talks to you and tells you about her, you know, her daily life uh, quite often. So this kind of nuance and this this ability to now see them as very different from each other a variety is, is very important uh, but it's also important in the sense of how the the state now sees this invisible set of people and will this will this actually create uh, an impetus to to uh, measure migration better or uh, you know for cities to actually say that look we really need to know who lives here. Huh. Um, mm. where they live how they live for how long they live we need to have a handle on this because if we have to cater to so somebody we know uh, a, a researcher friend of mine Nitin who has been working in this Gurgaon Manisar area actually discovered that public health centers in places like Manisar and Dharu Heda have better records uh, of the population than uh, census or other kind of administrative records because mm in those areas, especially away from the city, migrant workers also access the public health system. So yeah. even the state has some yeah. of these, you know, better, some departments have better records than the others, but it doesn't really uh, spend any time in, in uh, bringing these databases together to get a real handle of what's happening. And there's never really been a need to do that. So now that we are in a crisis, that that need has uh, presented itself.
1: Hmm. So, for for some of us who've been looking at this problem, actually, this was a a, a difficult moment in the sense that you you take it for granted sometimes that uh, maybe it is better for people uh, to be not visible or or at least be selectively visible because mm-hmm. uh, cities can be very intolerant to um, to some groups of people. And that actually was put to a very strong test at this moment because if they're not visible, then how do you reach them? So given all of this and, and uh, um, given your strong focus on of, of your research and your work on migrants, um, um, I mean, many of us have been looking at the, the the horrifying images of literally tens of thousands of people attempting to walk back to their villages. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what do you think will be the long-term impacts of this on on migrants in the cities?
0: Um, so, everybody in the city who lives hand-to-mouth is currently vulnerable. Daily wages, perhaps most so, whether they are migrants or not, all kinds of daily wage labor. Um, and construction and contractual industrial workers who are uncertain about wages. So, the immediate problem is, will the next set of wages be paid for hmm. contract workers? Uh, but on the other side, uh, even if uh, so, so it, I think we need to think through what kind of sectors will bounce back once the lockdown lifts, and yeah. what kind of sectors and establishment will actually uh, not be able to immediately start up and will need support or will have uh, intense cash flow issues. So, for example, I mean the government has issued circulars saying industry should pay wages, but a lot of the smaller units actually don't have the cash flows to pay wages when production is not happening. So this is a real problem that that entrepreneurs and that owners of businesses are facing, even if they're well-intentioned, they're not able to make those payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other aspect of this is that rents are piling up. So migrant workers live on le- on rent, and the informal rental economy works in a particular way. So very early, actually, before the lockdown uh, got enforced, uh, a few of us had written to the district uh, administration here, to the DC's office, uh, to the DC, and even spoken to him about this, saying that you really need to intercede with landlords and talk to them about what's going to come, and ask them to go easy on the rent. Hmm. Those steps were not taken. Um, uh, But, and and we hear very conflicting stories. So while the landlord may not be pressing you for rent today, there is also no mechanism by which a month's rent will be waived. Hmm.
1: Hmm. So
0: those rents are piling up and at some point of time, they will have to be paid. And if they are not paid, then there will be violence. Hmm. Hmm. And even today, when the landlords are operating grocery stores inside urban villages, they are overcharging for rations a lot of the sos calls ngos are getting is about overpriced rations and the government is getting complaints and they are actually registering firs against shopkeepers who are overpricing of course nobody knows whether you know these cases will ever go anywhere so so the, this is going to have a rippling effect going forward on certain kinds of industries which will not start up immediately uh, mm-hmm. Whereas domestic workers or everybody sort of related to the corporate sector like housekeeping workers, security guards, their salary flow will not perhaps uh, see a uh, a a dip unless unless there is sort of a mass scale shutting of these establishments. So uh-huh. essentially, the establishments that are able to and able to work from home. The knowledge sector which the knowledge industry which is able to function in some sort of normalcy with a work from home scenario will be able to generate the cash flows to pay their workers even if it's reduced wages or some sort of pay cut. and the pay cuts may likely be taken by the higher uh, uh, income brackets at this point of time from whatever i'm hearing right now hmm. uh, uh, Even if there are layoffs, there may be not as many, but certainly industry and construction, uh, it might be possible that these workers will leave and only return when these sectors are back on
1: track. So
0: in some
1: sense, sense, what what I'm um, thinking about is that the resilience, the degree of resilience that we have, um, is actually a function of how far you are from the formal economy, right? You could be completely an informal worker. You may be operating in very informal ways. But if you're close to the formal, then you're likely to bounce back uh, faster. And if you're...
0: Perha- yeah, perhaps. But I think, again, there's a nuance to that in the sense that the size of the establishment really matters here. Um I'm, I'm not sure uh, uh, an industry, an industrial unit is also formal, and the contract worker in an industry is also quite close to the the formal sector, but may be redundant for a while till the till the uh, manufacturing uh, uh, the establishment is able to get its production back to the capacity it originally had. Hmm. So, so there, I mean, one will have to see how these things move, and uh, because it's a global pandemic. Uh, there are there are going to be linkages with uh, demand and supply chains mm-hmm. supply chains all
1: right so mukta if i were to ask you uh, tell me what do you think are three important lessons from all of this um this crisis um for the way in which we have been urbanizing for the last 20 years what do you think those would be from from your experience so, from gurgaon
0: yeah so i'm i'm an urban planner and i think sort of like a planner slash administrator I mean, that's sort of the frame that I'm looking at this uh, from mm. and what, I, what we've learned here is that involving civil society quickly uh, is and, and having a mechanism to do that is a very important resilience uh, measure so no uh. matter what kind of disaster you face being able to reach out quickly to the to the civil society in your uh, city is a critical uh sort of uh measure of how how well you'll be able to respond uh the second thing is communication channels i don't uh-huh. think the local state especially is very good with communication or uh-huh. has the need to really communicate with the public at large unless something like this happens so we've seen for example the dc use facebook live at a fixed time every evening to answer question and answers that have been put through the day and this is a great i mean it's, it's a great initiative of course it's a very elite it goes out to a certain set of people but it, it 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 tells us that it's possible to create communication channels that that are much more interactive and brings the state closer to people uh, which normally it is not perceived as um, in an in, woman in in situation. Um, and the third thing is around anticipation. Uh, part of having your eyes and ears to the ground is being able to see at least two or three days ahead of where you are right now. And uh, while uh, corporations, civil society, basically a lot of the market actors were able to do that, Sometimes the administration did not because they had so much to deal with on a day to day basis, they were not able to look look ahead all the time. And and so how do you use the eyes and ears that you have on ground? To be able to anticipate rather than only to cater to what is immediately in front of you, so those are the three sort of uh, takeaways that that I would put hmm.
1: on. So 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 if I were to summarize you in 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 one word, it's really important to be embedded, um, be able to anticipate what's going to happen and be able to uh, communicate what you're hearing and what needs to be communicated quickly. Um, But let me then um, take you back to another question that we haven't at all touched upon all through. Um, The lockdown seems to have pushed all of us into a mode of uh, firefighting, of uh, responding to uh, crisis at household scales almost all the time. But do you think that in doing all of this, we have actually lost sight of the bigger goal of this lockdown itself, which is to um, to flatten the, the coronavirus um, disease curve?
0: It depends on who the we is. I think when we're talking about skills like the household, uh, uh, it's not perhaps their job except following the lockdown and being obedient citizens to worry about whether the coronavirus is, I mean, how it's being fought. Um, i I would I would imagine the districts which are seeing more cases have had to respond and be much more vigilant and much more aggressive uh, mm-hmm. in their response. Uh, I live in a district which hasn't seen that kind of a rise. Uh, we had a large number initially, but those were because foreigners uh, who uh, had propped the virus in from outside were being treated in private hospitals located in this district.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we haven't really seen like a community spread or even you know. A, so this lockdown this the perception here is that the lockdown has been very effective. But so,
1: that, is, that, it is, and, that is effective because uh, the um, the suspect cases were already isolated.
0: And... Yes, and that vigilance and the almost the calling of. Uh, calling upon citizens to be vigilant about this, which resulted in, in, in almost unpleasant acts of vigilantism against some people, I'm sure. But even wow. so, I think that was effective when RWAs were tracking, literally going door to door and saying, have you had a son and or daughter return from a college located in these and these locations? If so, then their entire household has to go into a self-imposed quarantine for 14 days, getting the administration to put stickers on. And I think largely managed without too much of stickers and unpleasantness because there was a system from the administration to sort of communicate right up front why we have to do what we have to do
1: and it was and it was actually happening to a class of people for whom uh, dealing with that was not a big problem
0: exactly and and who i think were quite aware that they are the ones who are mobile and they are the ones who are likely to be carriers and spreaders i'm not Mm -hmm. saying that they weren't There weren't communities that, you know, had misperceptions who said things like we should not get maids to come because they carry the disease. But I think the administration was very clear in saying that this is an elite disease. People who have traveled abroad are likely to be carrying it and uh, you know we these are the measures that you should take to isolate and also then to restore these people so a community I know very close to where I live had two positive cases. both cases were admitted in the hospital and they had to undergo treatment and uh spent through their entire period of uh, uh you know fourteen days plus treatment plus whatever and then now they've come back to the community, and the community has re- Uh, lifted the kind of uh, stringent restrictions that they had put in place, particularly in that tower where those residents uh, were found positive. So Mm -hmm. this kind of sort of very uh, granular way of administrating this isolation quarantine facility has really helped. If they had had been community spread, it would have been very hard, I think, to impose any of these things. And one, one one has to hope that this lockdown would... Have contained it, but if the lockdown were to lift and we were to find that the cases are suddenly jumping up and spreading into the community, I don't think we have the infrastructure to uh, ha- handle that as of now. So yes, uh, I'm hoping that they are using the lockdown period to sort of earmark quarantine facilities and and do whatever is needed to uh, to deal with it in case we were to see a rise of cases once the lockdown But lifts.
1: Mukta, let's let's think about this. Um, As a continuing thing, Um, Mm -hmm. this lockdown is meant for three weeks and the Mm -hmm. first week has already uh, uh, been so troublesome for everyone. Um, And we have two more weeks to go. But do you think that if it continues for three more weeks after that, do you think we will be able to manage this? Um, What is the the sense of exhaustion in in the different actors in Gurgaon?
0: I think we would find it very, very difficult. I mean, while at, at one level, there will be a system and a rhythm to deal with some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the the, the the class of people who have been most supportive of the lockdown, who have really taken the TN's words word very seriously and implemented them, they would be the ones who are the most restless, because they're just not... Firstly, they're not used to this kind of immobility. They are a highly mobile marriage. Uh, secondly, I think uh, uh, one would expect a more graded response because when there is absolutely zero economic activity, we talked a lot uh, in this podcast about the poor, but even among the elite, uh, most people are talking about 25 to 30 percent pay cuts. Hmm. And uh, middle level, and this is among senior management, middle to senior management, but uh, lower down the scale, there is a widespread loss of uh, jobs. So, so economically, I think also to consider, you know, how do you divide sectors while still having social distancing in place as a way of tackling this rather than a complete lockdown?
1: Mm. So, um, I mean, we are looking at something which is quite exhausting and it is differential. It affects different groups of people very differently. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping and praying, and I'm sure you are, that um, we will have the strength to get through this and be able to um, bounce back. But, but um, on a personal level, <clears throat> um, you are a woman about town. I mean, you you're, you're someone who, for your research, for your work, for for everything that you do, city and being able to move around in the city is very important for you. How has this this um, uh, lockdown affected your personal household rhythms on a day-to-day basis
0: so you know before i became a person about town i actually spent many years working from home So for me it's a little bit of a little bit of a return to that um to that uh, mode of life but um with a better better understanding of what works and what doesn't work for me personally <laughs> So I haven't, I mean, I haven't, it, it, it's been a change, but it's not been an unanticipated or a completely novel uh, experience for me. <laughs> and uh, as far as being about town is considered, uh, concerned, as a researcher, of course I miss being able to rush to some place and actually do things physically, but it's a certain frustration in not being there in person. But it's also very heartening uh, to see how your respondents can risk, can can connect with you over the phone, can reach out to you spontaneously, can keep you engaged at mm-hmm. a time level. Like so so it's also a test of what again of the embeddedness. You know, as a researcher, how uh, how uh, deeply were you able to build your links? So in the, in, in
1: many the- ways, building on all the already existing connections and being embedded. We can actually extend ourselves in multiple dimensions, which don't necessarily involve physical mobility.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> of course, not in the same to the same extent. Right. And so, you know, it's good, it's it's nice to reflect on what extent we can uh, extend ourselves and where are those limitations. Um, hmm. And and is and also then to come back to the question of: Is it necessary to be physically mobile all the time? Hmm. Are we have we placed too much premium on this idea of physical mobility? It's also something that comes out a lot in my research because I am a mobility researcher. Ah. So when I talk to women, especially you raise the question about women, especially, uh, I mean, I work with young people. So girls often say that, you you heard a lot in the field that you keep harping about the fact that our mobility is restricted compared to, say, that of our brothers. But Ah. you forget that that ideas can move and come to us. Ah. You forget that news can move and come to us. So we don't have to move all the time for us to be at the cutting edge of things. So this is something that respondents have told me and it's interesting to sort of be in their shoes at this point of
1: time. What a beautiful way of thinking about this. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you Mukta. Um, We'll close here. And um, thank you very, very much.
0: Thank you, Anand. This was a great conversation. Thanks.
1: COVID-19 and the city is a series of podcasts put together by a group of urban researchers and practitioners. We are based in four institutions, Hyderabad Urban Lab in Hyderabad, Center for Policy Research in Delhi, Center for Urban Policy and Governance at TIS Mumbai, and Indian Institute of Human Settlements at Bangalore. Collectively, our network is called Tacit Urban Knowledge Research Network, or TURN for short. This series focuses on how our cities, the hotspots of coronavirus disease are coping with the crisis. Goodbye until the next episode.